Hello, this is Pod for the Course, and I am Tom Cade, the Director of Communications for Washington Golf. Uh, this year, 2022, is the centennial year for Washington Golf, which is formerly uh, called the Washington State Golf Association. It was founded in 1922 when the uh, very first Washington State Amateur was held at Yakima Country Club, and it was won by Bon Stein. And uh, we've been doing a series of podcasts throughout the year to uh, talk about the history of golf in the state and throughout the region. And we have with us again today Mike Rist, and Mike is the uh, a volunteer head lead historian at the BC Golf uh, Museum and the BC Golf House. And uh, he is also the official historian for the Pacific Northwest Golf Association. And uh, this is the now the fourth uh, edition of the podcast uh, that we've done with Mike during this year. And uh, Mike, thanks so much for taking the time again to be with on, on with us today. Oh, my pleasure. I, I guess you're also about to celebrate your Thanksgiving this week. We are, yeah. Today's Thanksgiving week, the day before, so it's a kind of a short work week for people. But uh, of course, the history of golf goes on. <laughs> um, so uh, today, uh, Mike, we we have uh, want to touch on. Uh, particular personality in the history of golf, not only Washington, but really throughout the region because his impact was, was so wide, wide re, uh, reaching. And uh, I know that uh, for us on our end, I'm probably on, I know on your end as well, but when we started doing some research into the history of uh, golf in the state, when we were preparing for the centennial year, we kept coming across the name of Robert Johnstone. And, uh, and I, everywhere we went, there was his name. And uh, I know that in your research, you kind of had the same experience. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. I, for many years, I've always wondered about him because he kept popping up everywhere, building golf courses, uh, pros who had worked for him, caddies, club makers. It, it just seems like he had his finger in everything. So I thought, well, maybe we should find out who this fellow really is, find out his background. Yeah. Um, so let's uh, kind of begin at the beginning with, with this person, uh, Mr. John Stone. Um, I know that he uh, became a uh, the, the head uh, PGA professional at Seattle Golf Club for several years, many years, back in the early 20th century, early part of the 1900s. Um, but he, he is not from around here. He came from Scotland, I believe. Is that correct? Yeah, he came from North Berwick. He was born around 1875 uh, in North Berwick. His father was the greenskeeper at uh, North Berwick, the old course. So um, maybe he wasn't very good in school, who knows, but at a very young age, 13, 14, 15, he started working for one of the prominent uh, pros and club makers in Scotland, Ben Sayers, and he started as a ball maker. Started as a ball maker in, in North Berwick. That was his first profession. Uh, yeah. yeah. And then he moved to, it's difficult to say exactly when, but shortly, maybe two or three years after that, he he also went to work for Jim Hutchinson, who was also another club maker in North Berwick, uh, not as well known as Ben Sayers. Ben Sayers mm -hmm. actually made clubs, I think. They finally closed in 1960s, 1970s. Oh, lasted uh, a long time. Yeah, they were in business for probably 100 years. Um, 
and uh, and then he moved on. Like most of these fellows, they wanted to get a, the prominent mm-hmm. club makers, club manufacturers in Scotland. So he moved to St Andrews, worked for Forgan for a while, and then he uh, went to the Gibson factory, probably around 1895, and uh, worked in the Edinburgh factory. Gibson at that time was the largest club manufacturing company in the world. So it would be understandable that he would want to go work for them. Yeah, sure. So uh, the main reason... Covered in the go ahead. Um, they, um, these club makers uh, and golfers, they were all very good golfers, they were not classified as a professional until they earned money teaching. They could earn all kinds of money playing in these money matches, but they weren't really a professional uh, until they actually gave lessons. I found mm-hmm. that quite I didn't know that fact when I started this project. Uh-huh. So what was his, uh, again, what was uh, Mr. John Stone's main reason for coming to the U.S.? Well, uh, do you have my outline there? Well, why don't you go ahead and say it, Mike? Uh, it's. I think we should start with a, a really interesting story um, um, that happened at the Gibson's factory because I, I thought it was so cool. Um, mm-hmm. So if you can imagine this really long table, and the pic- there's lots of pictures showing Oregon factory, Gibson, Stewart factory, and there may be a dozen club makers around this enormous table, 40 feet long, 10, 15 feet wide. And all the supplies are out on the table. And they're doing various tasks. One is assembling heads or gripping or or putting the shellac on or whatever. And, and uh, Johnson told this story, which which I thought was so interesting. You have to realize this pre-1900, okay? And it's uh, golf really hasn't got started in America yet. Didn't really get started until, oh, maybe 1910 to 1915. So they're assembling these clubs. And, of course, you know, no club is going to come out perfect. You might make a mistake on whittling the or putting the grip on wrong putting the pin in the hosel incorrectly. So they didn't throw them away. They always had a, a large box at the end of the table. And that's uh, where the culls went, the, the discards. And on the top was marked for the, Cana- uh, for the American market. And the story was that the Americans were too new playing golf. They wouldn't know a good club from a bad club. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. So um, in 1900, uh, in San Francisco, the Presidio Club had just – that's the forerunner to the San Francisco Golf Club. And uh, and they're looking for a uh, golf pro. So they send a fellow by the name of John Lawson. He was the manager 
owner, I think, of Belfer Guthrie Company in San Francisco. They were also in Tacoma. Um, and he goes over to Scotland, particularly to Edinburgh, because that's where most of the pros and manufacturers were, St. Andrews, Edinburgh area, uh, looking for a young professional for their new club. And all the people he interviewed said, well, the most prominent, the best club maker, experienced in greenskeeping, experienced as a professional, good player, and a couple of Scottish assistant tournaments is Bob Johnston. Uh, so he interviews him and he likes him and, and he brought him to San Francisco in 1900, April 1900 to be the first pro at Presidio. So that's how he got to uh, North America. Hmm. Okay. And that was in 1900, right on 1900, yeah? April 1900. Yeah, okay. And, and when he arrives... Uh, he immediately is probably one of the best players in San Francisco. Although Will Smith uh, was probably equal or even better. Um, the pros on the East Coast were beginning to start to uh, spend their winters uh, in California and Florida. Mm -hmm. So uh -huh. uh, prominent pros in the New York, um, New Hampshire, uh, um, Massachusetts area were there, and um, but Johnston uh, he tells a really cool story about when he arrives. Um, he Johnston was a great storyteller. I pulled out all the stories and put them in a little bundle in case I ever need some Johnston stories. And I think for this interview I'll talk about five of them. Um, but this one is really cool. So you have to realize they're using gutty balls. The Haskell ball didn't come into effect until uh, 1902 or 1903. That's the wound ball as, as we know today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, the, re the, the balls overuse, of course, would get cut up and pieces would fall out. It's a solid ball. And the players in San Francisco, they were just throwing them away. So Johnston started collecting them because in Scotland, they didn't throw anything away. And, and these balls had a characteristic. If you put them in hot water, they became malleable again, just like original. So you do anything you want with them. And, of course, when Johnston arrived, he had all his ball-making material and his club making material. He, he brought everything with him. And these balls, um, they, were, they were made in molds. And the molds had various numbers, 26, 27, 28, 29. And that basically was the uh, diameter of the ball. And Johnson, over time, he told, he said that he could pop a ball into his mouth and tell you if it was a 26 or a 28. So anyway, would take these old balls that at the club were throwing away, and uh, he would throw them into boiling water to remake them. And he would always, if he thought it was a 28, he would put the material into a 27 or a 26. 
always a lower number. And he'd remake the ball. Uh, they were a bramble design at this time, and dry them and paint them. And the members, and same in Scotland, this was a trick that Ben Sayers had taught him. Um, the members, especially the better members, discovered, wow, these balls actually went further than the brand new ball. So Johnson was able to sell them for 60 cents, his remakes, whereas the new ball was only 50 cents. So is it, why would it go further? Why was it a better ball, even though it was a remake? Well, when you put it in a smaller number, you compress the molecules tighter. Therefore, it became harder. Therefore, it would go further. <laughs> Did that happen? <laughs> yeah. um, so you mentioned that he was quite a good player as well, and I noticed in your notes here that he – so he arrived in 1900 in San Francisco, and he won the California State Open in 1901, 1903, and 1904. That's, that's yeah, pretty that's, good playing. Yeah. Even though he's playing against, you know, some really U.S. Open players, um, mm -hmm. golfer, there's no doubt about it. He played mm -hmm. a little different than the player. He played a Varden style. He had shorter clubs, and he played a finesse game, and there's lots of clippings talking about him being an excellent chipper and putter and and maneuvering the ball around, whereas the players in America, being new players, they all concentrated on distance. They wanted to be able to hit the gutty ball 280 yards. They wanted to be able to hit their woods 150, 200 yards, whereas Johnson, he wasn't that type of player, and the people in Britain weren't the pros, the really good players, Varden, Taylor, Braid, Ray. They were finesse players. They could hit it far if they needed to, but they were more of a finesse player. And Johnson mm -hmm. brought characteristic to the San Francisco area. Mm -hmm. So, um, and while he was there, so he, let's see, I'm looking at, again, looking at your notes. He uh, started out at the Nine Hole Presidio course, which was the precursor of the San Francisco Golf Club. And then he uh, looks like he laid out a new public course in the Golden Gate Park area of San Francisco. Is that correct? Yeah, the uh, the Parks Board, the mm -hmm. San Francisco Parks Board, I guess they could foresee that they needed a public golf course. Um, and so he went and laid out nine-hole course for them. I d didn't do the further research to see where it went and when it opened and everything. And then mm -hmm. just he left, he he laid out, which I didn't know, laid out the new Ingleside course for the San Francisco Golf Club, the 18-hole course, just before he left. Uh, uh -huh. Uh -huh. I wasn't so was that, were, the, were these his first efforts at actually laying out a, designing a, a golf course? Did he do any of this in, in Scotland while he was there? Not that I found. Um, uh -huh. the, news, the Scottish newspaper databases that I have are not extensive. Like, I don't have a complete run of the Ed Edinburgh Times, for example, mm -hmm. or the Globe. Uh, mm -hmm. The name of it. Okay. All right. So, uh, 
So he's in the uh, San Francisco area, and then in 1905, he goes to the Seattle area. Yeah, there or, was a probably the biggest uh, tournament held to date uh, in 1905 was the Lewis and Clark. Um, and it was the PNGA tournament, but it was also celebrating the Lewis and Clark expedition arriving in Oregon. Mm-hmm. And came from everywhere and this was the first time that a tournament in the Northwest had put up a purse for golf pros mm-hmm. now it didn't attract a lot it only attracted eight um, to Johnson being from San Francisco and being a good player he was attracted to it and a number of players came from the San Francisco area. amateurs came also to play in this event so that's what got him to Waverly. And then the members at Seattle Golf Club saw this young professional and enticed him um, to come to Seattle to build the new Highlands course. They were at Laurelhurst at that time, and they mm-hmm. wanted this new 18-hole golf course in the Highlands. So that attracted him. Um he in one interview in the oh, late 20s, early 30s, he was really torn whether to come or not. Um, he was very satisfied at San Francisco, um, but it was the challenge of building this new course and the challenging challenge of coming to an area where golf, you know, really was just the beginnings. Not like San Francisco; it was starting to take. And that, that's what attracted him. And he uh-huh. came in 1905, and he died in 1937. So for the rest of his life, he was in the Seattle area, yeah? Yeah, and, and the one that really generated the whole thing uh, was by Dreyer. Um, this was from an interview, uh, early 30s, right around when he formed the uh, Pacific Northwest Professional Golfers Association. Uh, no, sorry. Uh, it, it was in around 32. Professional golfers formed in 22. But he said, uh, Dreyer used this uh, uh, description of Johnson, and, and it is so true. Uh, if you want to be a good player, if you're developing a golf course, or you're looking for a head professional, a green superintendent, a manager for your course. If you want to ensure success, you should go talk to Bob Johnston. And that was just an incredible tribute to this man. Um, Mm -hmm. He he immediately, when he got to to, uh, uh, Seattle, in this clubhouse, which I don't... The present clubhouse, I think, opened 1907, 1909, I can't remember. But he had a, a room strictly for club making. And he'd always have three, four, five, six young caddies who wanted to get into the golf business making golf clubs. And I, from that, I, I learned a lot, actually, about the markings on these early clubs. Um, but these caddies became the first pros, first managers. And uh, when I'm always doing these projects, I'm always trying to identify who was the first local-born professional. 
like in British Columbia, it's Walter Gravelin. He was born in Victoria. He was uh, came across in 1918 for Macaulay uh, for United Services and then Uplands. So who was the first um, in the Seattle who who came out of the caddy ranks through Johnston and became a pro? Well, I couldn't quite identify to the month. But the year was 1914, and there were three candidates. And they were all caddies at Seattle working for Johnson. They were, uh, all three of them were club makers. Uh, James Runchy, he became an assistant under Jefferson at Everett around 1912. But he didn't become a full professional uh, until... Uh, uh, 1914. Harry Pratt, he was another candidate. He became the first pro at uh, Portland Golf Club uh, in 1914. And Walter Ball, he became the first pro at Olympia. So mm -hmm. if I found the exact month, I could pin it down, but I didn't go that mm -hmm. far. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, uh, 1905, he arrives in, in the Seattle area, or the Northwest, I should say, and uh, the Seattle Golf Club people, they, they hire him away from from uh, San Francisco. And he designs and lays out the the full 18-hole Seattle Golf Club after they moved from Laurelhurst area, correct? Yes, that's right. That was his, as far as I can, um, of course, I don't know exactly what he did in Scotland, but in North America... This would have been his third design, um, mm -hmm. public golf course in Ingleside being the first two. Um, mm -hmm. He and McCann over the years made changes to Seattle Golf Club, but really, I McCann had input, but most of the designs, um, especially before about 19... 25 were all done by Johnson mm -hmm. and he got this reputation that uh, if you were building a golf course even though he may not do the full design he was fully involved in the development process um, and so I think we're here a little bit later I talk about all the courses that I've identified where Johnson worked with James, or he worked with McCann, or he actually did them himself. Mm -hmm. So uh, between, uh, let's see, I'm going forward a couple of years here. Uh, it looks like in 1913, uh, Johnstone spearheaded the uh, exhibition matches between he and uh, Jim Barnes and Ted Ray and Harry Varden that, that made a tour through the Northwest. Is that right? Yeah, the main person, though, for that uh, was uh, Carey, A.S. Carey. Oh, A.S. Carey, yeah, okay. He financed everything. He, they would never have come to the Northwest unless uh, Carey had a, paid for it. And in order for those two guys mm -hmm. to golf clubs, Spokane, Seattle, Portland, Tacoma, Vancouver, Carey actually paid the whole bill. None of those golfers uh, could afford it. Mm -hmm. So, sure. Harry's another fellow that uh, I'm researching right now. His contribution was enormous. 
mm-hmm. uh, Johnston, he he set up the matches who who was going to who, but the instigator, the financier, was A.S. Carey. Mm-hmm. He went to California and convinced the manager. Mm-hmm. That, that tour was sponsored by. Yeah. And yeah. and Varden and Ray, uh, in most instances, unless they felt they needed some additive sent to, to play, uh, they played for the gate. Uh, they felt mm-hmm. that it attract a big enough crowd um, that they would be well paid by receiving all the money from the gate. And mm-hmm. then they so had a, a another little caveat that if they broke the course record, they were entitled to a hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. At Victoria Golf Club, they didn't break it the first time, so on their own, they said we're staying another day so we can set the course record. <laughs> so that neat side. So that was in 1913, and that was the same year that. Uh, Ray and Varden lost in the playoff to uh, We Met in the U.S. Open. Is that correct? Yeah, that was in the fall. And believe it or not, and most people don't believe this, but um, after that um, event occurred, I believe it was in September, when uh, We Met won the uh, U.S. Open in a playoff against Varden and Ray. And then Spalding convinced them to go on a North America tour, and Spalding sponsored the expenses and everything. And that tour probably did more to expand golf in North America than any other event, especially in the Northwest. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of a sudden, Tacoma had Lake Wood, and um, they had three courses constructed with them about two months after that event. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same happened in other areas uh, uh-huh. of the Northwest. That, that definitely triggered uh, a boom in gold. Unfortunately, the war came, so it got delayed a bit yeah. until after the war. Yeah. So that 1913 in the Northwest, <clears throat> the uh, exhibition, but also, as I understand it, that was also the year that they broke ground in building the Jefferson Park Municipal Golf Course, the first municipal course in the Seattle area. And Johnstone, as I understand it, he he designed that course. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. He I didn't realize that he did that in course entirely on his own. Um, mm-hmm. 1913, and it has a distinction. Uh, what is distinction? It's definitely the first public course in the Pacific Northwest. And then one clipping in the Seattle said it was the first public golf course in the West. But I haven't gone and done the research to see what happened to the public golf course Johnson laid out at Golden Park, a uh, Golden, um, Golden, mm-hmm. what I mean, the, the Golden State Park in San Francisco. So did that project fall through and? Jefferson really was the first public golf course west of the Mississippi. Mm-hmm. That I'm yeah. not sure. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Supervised everything. The historians or people write that Barnes was involved in that, but I did all the, I researched all the clippings 
Barn visited, of course, a couple of times to uh, look over Johnson's work, but it was Johnson's golf course. Jim Barnes, well, he was pro at Tacoma. He had very, very, if any, real input at golf course. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So um, the, uh, the the golf boom in the Northwest really kind of was taking shape in the mid-19, you know, between 1910 1920. Even during World War One, it still kind of kept going. I, I believe there was uh, Jefferson Park opened in 1915, and I also think the uh, uh, Meadow Park golf course, the, the Muni down in Tacoma, I think they opened in 1915 as well, and also Down River in Spokane, another Muni. I, I think they opened in 1916 or 17. So uh, I don't know that Johnstone had a had a role in those, but it, it was uh, it was definitely uh, in the in the in the mood of the era of this golf boom. Oh, absolutely, because the first year Je- Jefferson could have actually opened in 1914. It was all seated. It was in perfect condition. Uh, guests were playing it in the fall of 1914. And Parks Board, Seattle Park, were so worried that this golf course was going to be a flop. Oh, no, we can't open it. We'll lose nothing but money. So we better wait till the spring when everybody wants to play golf. Well, they discovered in the first six months they had a gold mine. And once the receipts and the the revenue for that golf course started spreading throughout the Northwest, everybody wanted a public golf course. So Vancouver wanted one. Victoria wanted McCann wanted to build one at Elk Lake. Um, they were going to build one here at the uh, PNE. Um and Spokane did, and Tacoma actually did. But every, all these municipalities, these town councils could see, wow, this is golf. This this way we can generate lots of money. And yeah. that Jefferson generated lots of money. Yeah, I heard some some uh, really uh, kind of crazy number that, so they opened in 1915, and by 1922, which is when Washington Golf uh, founded was founded, by 1922, Jefferson was doing 100,000 rounds a year, which is an, an enormous amount of golf being played on, on one golf course. Absolutely. Even the first public golf course in Vancouver, Langara, which... We were really late. 1926, it opened. It was a McCann course. And they did 100,000 rounds uh, in less. In, I, they they opened, and I think it was 10 months, they did 100. Uh, it, golf was booming. Everybody yeah, wanted. And it, it didn't cost hardly anything. Like when Jefferson opened, I think it was. 25 cents for you could play all day <laughs> uh, when they opened Langara in Vancouver people camped out in their cars two days before so they could get to play on opening day it was crazy. yeah amazing so um, back to Robert Johnstone and uh, so 1915 he's uh, he's 
designed and opening the Jefferson Park golf course. He must have done other courses during this time as well. Do you think? In the uh, yeah, he opened the university. He designed university, the first course at the university golf course. Um, mm-hmm. I opened 19. I think it opened before Jefferson. They were building mm-hmm. it at the time. The nine-hole course was along the canal where the stadium is. Uh, the hospital was only one building at that time, and then mm-hmm. as the hospital expanded and the stadium got built, the course uh, mm-hmm. uh, closed. When I went there in 65, the map for the university still showed the golf course. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. It was the early 60s, finally mm-hmm. closed. Johnson built it. I don't know if ever gone over to Bainbridge and played the Country Club of Seattle. They still have sand greens. Um, and uh, he re- did some renovations there for them. Um, and then the next full project was on Mercer Island, a little nine-hole. Uh, Erlington, he'd, he'd worked at it for, for quite a bit. Uh, Erlington was on – I didn't know Erlington was on Mercer Island. I'll be darned. Two separate courses. Oh, okay. okay. In 1917, he, he laid out a nine-hole course on Mercer Island, but he was also doing work at Erlington in Seattle. Oh, got it. Okay, I got it. And James was working on it, too. Uh-huh. So then in 19 let's let's go for a few more years to 1922. So a lot was going on in the in the administration part of the golf in golf world in, in the Northwest. Not only was it the the founding year of the British Columbia Golf Association, but it was also the founding year of the Washington State Golf Association and also the Pacific Northwest Section PGA section. And uh <clears throat> the National PGA had was founded in 1916. But it, the the Northwest section of the PGA was founded in 1922, and Robert Johnstone had a significant hand in that. Is that correct? Yeah, he he was the spearhead. He wanted to create an organization so the charlatans couldn't hang out a shingle and say they're a golf pro. He mm-hmm. wanted to give some sort of professionalism to this vocation. Uh, he he wanted to create more open tournaments so these mm-hmm. young pros earn money, um, and so that was the basic reason for forming the Pacific Northwest Professional Golfers Association. They really didn't have a whole lot to do with the national body. That really didn't the national body didn't really start dividing up uh, North uh, United States into sections. Until, oh, I can't remember if it was right after the war or just before the Second World War. But these associations operated independently. There was a California golf, a professional golfers association. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was one in the Midwest. and um, But they they sent players to the PGA tournament, but there was not uh, a lot of coordination between them. Mm-hmm. Johnson set up this little independent group, mainly for his people in the Northwest. And most of the the pros had all come through Johnston. Uh, mm-hmm. They, all the young assistants had all been caddies 
one day I'm actually going to list them all because everyone says, oh, I was a caddy at Seattle Golf. Well, you're a you became an assistant. You worked in the shop where they manufactured these clubs. Um, so uh, I, I think the list could be, oh, 30 or 40 people easily. Well, you also uh, you mentioned that not only what did he sort of mentor a lot of these young professionals, but he was a was a, an instructor, a golf instructor to, to a lot of the really good local amateur players. Is that right? Yeah. Well, you mentioned mm-hmm. earlier the first Washington State amateur champion was Bon Stein. Well, Bon mm-hmm. Stein came through the caddy ranks at Seattle Golf, but he didn't become a professional, but mm-hmm. he very good player, and he was one of Johnson's pupils. Um, Mm -hmm. I think if you look down your list of probably the first 10 Washington State Amateur Champions, uh, if they're all from Washington, which I think they are, because I think that was a restriction originally, uh, they probably were all caddies at Seattle Golf Club and all had instruction from Bob Johnson. The women, definitely. Um, if, as that original quote from Dreyer, if you want to be a good player, uh, and you should definitely go and see Bob Johnson. That was what you did. Well, I think that uh, the, the original, what was called the, the big four players, which was Bon Stein, Elise Steele, Claire Griswold, and uh can't remember, I'm sorry, the fourth player. Remember the fourth player's name? Oh, gosh. <laughs> the, the first for all caddies at Seattle Golf Club. Yeah, that's what I mean. Oh, here we go. Yeah, it's uh, uh, Bonstein and Clark Spires. So, uh, yeah. The fourth one. <clears throat> yeah, but you're right. I, I think all four of them were started out as caddies at Seattle Golf Club. And they were they were public course players. They played actually at Jefferson. But uh, I, they all tra- trained at uh, – you know, Seattle Golf Club, basically. And I believe they even became members, honorary members at Seattle Golf Club. And I'm sure that uh, Robert Johnstone had something to do with that. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And Chuck Hunter out of Tacoma, he was not a caddy at Seattle Golf Club, but when he went to the U, he took lessons from Johnston. So there's another Mm -hmm. Washington State amateur champion. What did he win? Mm -hmm. Three, four? Um, They... The whole list of all those early players, Bob Johnston probably had his finger in their career in some way or other. And same mm-hmm. with all the early um, uh, pros who won the Washington State Open. The very first one was uh, Charlie Houston, and he was a caddy at Seattle Golf Club, and he was <laughs> and a club maker under Johnston. Um Johnson played this role in everybody. The managers, you wanted a manager. Well, you you went to Johnston because maybe they'd worked as as a system manager at Seattle Golf Club. You needed a greenskeeper. Well, you came there because there was probably a guy that trained under uh, under the superintendent at Seattle Golf Club. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. He, this role in everybody's life. Mm-hmm. 
And it looks like uh, from your notes here, he, uh, Johnstone served as the president of the, the Pacific Northwest Section PGA from 1922 until 1930. I think that's the date. I, I didn't check it, but it's 30 mm -hmm. or 30. And mm -hmm. it, it was logical because he had this connection to all golf clubs. When Washington State was arranging their amateur and open championship, well, Johnson did all the arranging. Yeah. Um, and Johnson convinced the PNGA, because he was close friend with Kerry, that there should be a Pacific mm -hmm. North Open the first two days before the PNGA. Um, mm -hmm. And Johnson played a role in making sure the PNGA courses were the best. Uh, McCann did most of the renovations for those courses before the PNGA and Open came there. Um, mm -hmm. He and it it was logical that he should maintain this presidency um, because he was so well connected and this organization had just started. Um, mm -hmm. He acted as an arbitrator. One story: Willie Black had signed a contract with uh, Race Harbor to be their pro. Well, then in the before the month, excuse me, before the months out. He signed a contract with Bellingham. Mm -hmm. So Grace Harbor was livid. Um, so they appealed to Johnson. What's he going to do? So to solve the problem, he found them a better pro, Morty Duton, um, who mm -hmm. and then went to Englewood. And uh, so just to remind some of the listeners out there, the, uh, in 1922, the Washington State Open and Washington State Amateur were held for the first time, and they were held back-to-back -back consecutively at the same venue, Yakima Country Club. And this had to have been, uh, you know, I, I'm assuming it was Robert Johnstone's idea to do this, was to, was to bring everyone together and, and have this week of golf uh, exhibition of some kind, yeah? Oh, absolutely. And it was the most convenient. Mm -hmm. uh, this is, organization was just starting. And it was mm -hmm. on nine golf courses. And so mm -hmm. uh, it was logical that, yeah, let's hold the Open and the Amateur at the same time. And for logistics, Johnson ran everything. So mm -hmm. uh, it would be perfectly logical that uh, these would be held on the same venue. I mm -hmm. don't have, probably no better than I, when they finally split, when they started having their own venues, I think. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, I think it was 1955. They, I know, during World War II, uh, as you discovered, the uh, Washington State Amateur continued to be held, but the Washington Open did not. So they were not obviously held back to back during World War II, but they picked it up again in 1946. And again, I'm pretty sure the last year they held it together was in 1955 at Spokane Country Club. And then from then on, they've, they've held them separately. Yeah, that, that seems to ring a bell when I was doing the mm -hmm. research Washington State Amateur. Um, mm -hmm. Finally, they separated. Yeah. But like, what, 30 years? Yeah, yeah. Uh, them together. Um, yeah. It's incredible how they get a golf club to give up their course for that length of time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, uh, the the Open, Washington Open, I believe, was at stroke play 
but the Washington State Amateur at that time was match play, and that that typically takes longer to to do that, and takes up the full takes up the whole course, and and a whole week. Yeah, for the whole week. That's right. Yeah. So, so I uh, mentioned some other courses that Johnson was involved in the design. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were involved in the Inglewood book. Well, McCann and Johnson did the original design for Inglewood. Uh, he did the first nine at Rainier, and then shortly after the first nine opened, McCann did the second nine. And then the little Glendale course, I think now it's called Glen Acres, is it? Next to Glen Rainier? Acres. Yep. Uh, Johnson and McCann did it. And Johnson and James did the Olympic course, beautiful golf course, apparently, in the north end of Seattle. Um mm-hmm. And then he did Jackson entirely on his own, which I wasn't aware of, uh, the second public golf course in Seattle. Yeah, Jackson Um, Park uh, in the north end of Seattle. That's right. I had no idea that, as far as I could tell, I pulled all the clippings. He did that course entirely on his own. So he did both of those public golf courses for Seattle, basically on his own. Wow. It's quite a tribute. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, there was quite a connection uh, between Scotland golfers uh, coming to the Northwest. And they, it's, it, what I can gather, and from your notes as well, it, they came here because this is where golf at that time in the early 1900s, it was just beginning. And they had, you know, they were the experts. And they came, they came here and, and established the game in the area, basically. Without a doubt. And they also came because, you know, um, they may not have been really good players. So in Scotland, they probably would have had a difficult time getting a head pro job. But Mm -hmm. here, all you had to have was a Scottish accent and a bit of a golf. And you would know how to lay out a golf course and you would know how to give instruction and make clubs. That everybody assumed that, so they had a much easier time to uh, get pro jobs with this expanding market, this expanding number of golf courses being built, and every golf course wanted to have a Scotsman associated with their golf course. That mm-hmm. just so uh, mm-hmm. there, some of them remained in the business, and you know some didn't, but um, yeah. That would uh, that was another reason why they were attracted to the Northwest, and the Northwest had a very, very, very large British population. Mm-hmm. Very. So uh, John Stone, he passed away in 1937. Did he stay at Seattle Golf Club as their pro until 1937? Do you do you know that, Mike? In the clippings, it was quite quite interesting. Around 1932, that's when they started to do these interviews with them. Seattle Golf Club made him an honorary member. And they hired uh, Bill Zonker to be his assistant. Bill Zonker was an upcoming good player. uh, And the Seattle Golf Club was hoping Johnson would retire. But there's no, that 
was impossible. And then later, they made an honorary member, and then they passed the hat around and gave him this incredible trip back to Scotland, mm-hmm. hoping it would entice him to, to but no. He, he got really sick um, about a month before he died, actually. He died very quickly. I don't know what he had, but Seattle uh, uh, mm. Golf Club members were trying to nicely yeah. put him in retirement, but yeah. he, he wasn't having any <laughs> Not having any part of that. <clears throat> yeah, you have it. Uh, his death listed as uh, October 29th. 1937, after a short illness. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I have to tell one lovely story, and because he, he he loved to play for money, all these guys did. And mm-hmm. I have one story that uh, happened at Seattle Golf Club, and uh, I didn't put the date, but I think it was in the late 20s. And a, a guest arrives, and he's challenging. Uh, uh, Johnston to a match, a dollar a hole, which was fairly big money at that day. Johnson would play for more, but mm-hmm. Johnson had to give him a stroke a hole. Okay, and they're on the back nine. I, I they never did say this specific part. I don't know Seattle Golf Club well enough to know which part three it was. But anyway, the match is all even. And um, and the opponent, Johnson's opponent, he hits the ball about six inches from the hole, and he gets a stroke. So obviously uh, he's hole in one. Net hole in one, yeah. So Johnson's standing on the tee trying to figure out how, if he gets a hole in one, he, the least he can do is tie. How mm-hmm. can he win the hole? You have any idea? Um, no, but I'm thinking he's probably got some idea. Okay, so here's what Johnson does. He notices the caddies are not on the tee with them. They've taken a shortcut and are standing next to the green. Mm-hmm. The caddies, they're not paying attention. The one player is six inches from the hole, so obviously he's one. In their mind. Yeah. So Johnson aims his tee shot right at his opponent's caddy. (laughs) And he hits him. And ricochets on. Instantly, he wins the hole. Match play. Yeah, that's right. Hit or the bag. Yeah, hit the (laughs) caddy or the bag. That's right. I thought that was so cool. (laughs) (laughs) You know the rules. Use the yeah. rules for your yeah. Knew the rules. Didn't, yeah. And the caddies were attention. So yeah. the only way to win the hole is hit the caddy. Yeah. <laughs> that was one of but one of the highlights all these stories I accumulate. Mm-hmm. But I did in the course of the research finally answer the question. When these golf clubs and Bob Moffat Jack Moffat, Alex Duffy, all these early Scottish pros, they had a stamp with their name, sometimes the name of the club, but it had the word maker on it. And I never really knew if that actually meant that these guys made the golf club. 
while doing the research for this article, and if there's anybody out there who's a golf collector, uh, this has now been answered by Johnston. So in his manufacturing operation at Seattle Golf Club, he uh, stamped all these clubs, Robert Johnstone, uh, Seattle on the bottom, it was in a noble, and in the middle is the word maker. Johnston didn't actually make those clubs himself, but his uh, professionals, these club makers that, that were working for him, actually made the And Johnston ordered heads from a foundry in Seattle, and I assume he probably ordered the shafts from Scotland and the grips and things like that. He may have actually got the, gri the grips from a leather shop, a uh, hide guy in Seattle. Um, probably a plant where they were killing cattle, and, mm -hmm. uh, and but the the wooden clubs, Johnson bought all the blocks in Seattle, and they were usually about three by three by four inches wide and six inches long, and Johnson knew how to make uh, a club out of that block, and and join shaft. And the club makers who worked for him, that was part of their training. They all had to take a block and make a wooden-headed club out of it. And maker. And in some instances, uh, the, uh, the interview that he did, for special occasions, uh, special members, he would have actually made the whole club himself. Uh, so that, uh, I was always curious. We have quite a few... Johnston's with this mark, a maker on it. And uh, mm -hmm. I had no idea mm -hmm. if he actually did make them in that shop, but he did. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. the Jack Moffat, Willie Moffat, all these pros in the Northwest who stamped maker on it, they probably mm -hmm. um, make the club, especially if it's a wood, they probably made it from a, a block. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of a neat little story. That came out of this research. So if they were made from a block, they were almost persimmon. They're just a solid block of wood rather than laminated wood. Yeah? Look at these clubs. Um, <laughs> we didn't have persimmon trees here. And uh, he said he used alder, birch, sometimes mm -hmm. apple. Um, and uh, that was the main pro Maple, he said, yes. If he wanted uh -huh. to grain he would make them out of maple and another yeah. little instance he said if the wood didn't come out perfectly and I didn't want to leave it natural because there were imperfections in the wood or what I I stained them dark dark uh, a black mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. we don't have one with the natural wood. all our woods have all been stained so he uh, sounds like John Stone. He he started out as a club maker and a ball maker in Scotland, and he, he really carried that forward and continued it in the here in the Northwest. Oh yeah, definitely. Which was very common. Uh, mm -hmm. If you look, do research on the pros in on in the East in the 1890s, before 1910, um, they pretty well all made the clubs themselves. Holding hadn't moved, didn't move their plant from England to North America. I think 1905, and 
McGregor and all these companies didn't really get going until 1905, 1910. Uh, so there wasn't uh, a lot of availability of golf clubs. So these pros, mm -hmm. they made the clubs. But after 1910 or so, everything comes from one of these big manufacturers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, uh, today, again, we have with us Mike Rist, the uh, uh, curator of the BC Golf Museum up in Vancouver, British Columbia. And Mike is also the official historian for the Pacific Northwest Golf Association. And uh, again, this is the fourth uh, podcast we've done so far this year with Mike uh, because of this the, being the centennial history year of the Washington State Golf Association, which is now called Washington Golf. And today's subject was uh, Robert Johnstone, and uh, the uh, native of Scotland who came to the Northwest in 1905 and went on to do many things, uh, designed golf courses, and also founded the Pacific Northwest Section PGA in 1922. And again, Mike, as we've uh, talked about today, everywhere you look, when you look into the history of golf in our area, you find Robert Johnstone's name. And he was just not one of those people that you would think about. You know, you think about the, the bigger names like the Chandler Egans and the A.V. McCann's and Robert Hudson's. Uh, but I think Robert Johnstone uh, really needs to be in that conversation with all those folks. Oh, I totally agree. And, mm -hmm. and now that I've done the research for Johnston and when we were doing the research for the PNGA Centennial book, another man that I'm well, I'm researching him right now, is A.S. Carey. Um, mm -hmm. He financed so many things and had such an influence. He did the first uh, bylaws of the PNGA and then updated them in 1927. He did the original bylaws for the Washington State Golf Association. He's another man. He was a lumberman, and, and I'm, I've done the first decade of research on him very good golfer which i wasn't aware of and but he had heavy influence mm -hmm. on the development of golf and mostly washington state uh, mm -hmm. nothing british columbia or oregon and another mm -hmm. name that's coming up associated with him although he didn't have the finances i don't think that Kerry had uh was josiah collins um i the other day i found out really extensive article calling him the father of golf in Seattle. So he's a banker, but I know basically nothing about him. Again, another member at Seattle Golf Club. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we'll have to do some research on him as well then. Uh, oh, definitely. And I think it's appropriate yeah. because it's the anniversary for Washington State Golf, this 100th anniversary, it's time that these people are recognized and and mm -hmm. their contributions are are investigated. What exactly did they do? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, okay, Mike Rist, uh, thank you again for joining us today. And uh, this, again, is the fourth installment uh, of a, a series of podcasts we're doing with you during the year for the centennial. And I'm sure that we're going to do uh, two or three more as we go along here. Um, but thank you again, Mike, for joining us today, and, and have, uh, we'll speak. We'll speak again soon, okay? And don't eat too much turkey. I won't. Okay. <laughs> All right, Mike. Thanks again. Okay. Bye. Bye. -bye. Thanks.